listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. We will get to our story in a moment, but first, Paula and I would like to thank all of you for your continued support. If you are new to our podcast, the best ways to support us is to tell a family member or a friend. Leave a five-star review, and also consider becoming a Patreon member by going to patreon.com slash ohiomysteries. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Ohio Mysteries. Now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Stevie Utter, and with us as always is our storyteller and award-winning journalist who spent 30-plus years at the Akron Beacon Journal writing stories just like this, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everybody. There's something particularly unsettling about abduction murders that happen in broad daylight to people doing normal things in busy places. I think because it makes all of us feel vulnerable. How does someone go to a store in the middle of a weekday afternoon only to be taken by a killer in the parking lot? It's a question people found themselves asking after Barbara Ann Butler, a first-year middle school teacher in Southwest Ohio's Fairborn, went to buy an outdoor grill and ended up dead on the floor of her Volkswagen. Barbara's case was remarkable for another reason. It confounded authorities for years, and then suddenly, police named their top suspect with such confidence They closed her file without a conviction. This is the story of Barbara Ann Butler. Barbara Ann Butler was born in 1945 in the Columbus suburb of Westerville to Martha and Bernard Butler, who owned a dry cleaning business. Barbara and her brother Greg grew up on Minerva Lake Road. She grew into a beautiful young lady, a bit on the quiet side, but popular enough to be elected homecoming queen at Westerville High School in 1963. Her high school nickname was Barbie Doll. She was in the Precision Marching Group, the Class Play, the Thespian Society, sang in the Glee Club, worked as a librarian and lab assistant, and belonged to a bowling league. Her friends thought of her as fun, sweet-natured, and loyal. The five-foot-four brunette was also wicked smart. Her first two years at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, were paid for, in part, through scholarships by her hometown's PTA, Barbara graduated from Miami U in 1967 with a degree in education, and she landed her first job that fall with the Fairborn School District in Montgomery County near Dayton. She was hired as an 8th grade science teacher at Central Junior High School. Before the new school year began, she settled into a townhouse apartment on Woodman Park Drive in Mad River Township which she shared with another teacher, Connie Lewis. But about midway through the school year, Barbara decided she wasn't where she wanted to be. 
She didn't want to stay in Fairborn and maybe didn't want to teach at all. That spring, she applied for a teaching job at the Westerville School District so she could at least return home. But there was no opening for a middle school science teacher. So she quit her job at Fairborn and accepted a job at the National Cash Register Company in Dayton. Her father said she was going there to teach programming, though to be honest, I don't know what teach programming meant in the pre-computer world of 1968. The first weekend that June, with the school year having ended, the 23-year-old Barbara went home to Westerville for a long visit. She stayed with her parents and gave away no signs of there being any real problems in her life. She returned to her apartment in Mad River on Tuesday night. The next morning was Wednesday, June the 12th. Barbara started the day at the apartment complex's pool, as she always did. She sunbathed every morning in the very same spot, wearing a blue and white polka dot bikini, but never went into the water. She chatted with two nurses who lived next door to her, but cut her sunbathing time short when dark storm clouds started moving in. Barbara bid her fellow sunbathers farewell, commenting that she was off to do some shopping. She was headed for the Ontario Discount Store, located on Wilmington Pike in Kettering. She wanted to buy an outdoor charcoal grill. The reason became evident when she stopped in at the apartment office on her way out to ask for a pool pass for a weekend guest. She had a male friend from Toledo coming in to visit. Barbara dated a lot, but she was too career-minded to get serious yet. She often quipped that she would be the last of her friends to marry. Then, with the pool pass in hand, Barbara pulled away from the complex in her little silver-blue Volkswagen Beetle. Barbara never came back. Barbara's roommate, Connie, had plans to move out of their apartment the next day. She decided to return to Columbus to take more classes. But she was there this last night, and she noted Barbara's absence. When Barbara wasn't home by 11 p.m., she called the police and reported her missing. Connie told police the two women always kept each other informed of their whereabouts. Something was wrong. When police failed to find Barbara, neighbors of the women decided to go search for her. I couldn't find their names reported in any story, but apparently they did what police didn't. They went to the discount store just after 5 p.m. Thursday and found Barbara's car in the parking lot. The doors of the car were locked, but they were able to open the cozy wing. That was that small crank side window that was common in a lot of cars back then. And they were able to let themselves in. And there, beneath a blanket on the passenger side of the car, they found Barbara. She was nude, but for the brown sandals she wore. Her culotte-style pant dress was found on the floor with her, 
torn in the front and at both legs as if it had been ripped from her. The Montgomery County coroner, Dr. Robert Ziff, would determine that Barbara had been strangled by a cord-like substance, possibly the neckline of her dress. He also said her forearms had been taped together, though it appeared Barbara had managed to break free of the tape shortly before her death. Police found the position of the tape on her forearms a rather unusual aspect of the case. Barbara had a black eye and a bruise on her right jaw. Even so, the coroner said there were no obvious signs of a struggle and, quote, it was not a crime of vengeance or passion in the classic sense. It was daintily done. Also, despite her state of undress, the coroner determined she had not been sexually assaulted. She was still a virgin. He put her time of death at about 11 p.m. Wednesday, though he cautioned that his guess could be hours off. Police spoke to employees at the store and put together a curious timeline of events. Barbara was in the store around 3 p.m. Wednesday, and she purchased a few outdoor cooking utensils and paid for them with a check. Employees who left the store at 10 p.m. said there was no VW in the parking lot at closing time. But an employee did spot the car in the parking lot at 4 a.m. Thursday morning. So the timeline suggested Barbara had been abducted and her car taken soon after 3 p.m., that she was killed at some unknown location around 11 p.m. Then she and her car were returned to the parking lot before 4 a.m. Thursday. The killer left the keys in the car and locked the doors before leaving. The items Barbara purchased in the store were also found in the car. Employees at the store placed an advertising flyer under the windshield wiper sometime Thursday, but police weren't surprised they hadn't seen Barbara on the floor inside since she was fully covered by the blanket. Kettering police began the business of interviewing anyone and everyone who knew Barbara. She was well-liked. There was no indication anyone she knew had reason to threaten her or mean her harm. Investigators collected four or five shades and lengths of human hair that they found in the Volkswagen and sent them off to the FBI in Washington, along with other undefined evidence. They also collected numerous finger and palm prints on the car, which they had to sort through since the people who found Barbara had left their own. Two weeks after Barbara's murder, police were cryptic about what they knew. One unnamed investigator told reporters, there is something about this case that you don't know. When it breaks, you'll find the whole thing was very well handled. But some were critical of actions taken or not taken. The Toledo man, who was supposed to visit Barbara the day after she was murdered, told a reporter police had never called him. Why haven't they talked to me, he said. 
I wanted to do everything in the world to help. I assumed the police would get in touch with me by now. And the Montgomery County prosecutor, Lee Falk, brought up the need for a metropolitan police squad that would combine county and local resources to tackle homicides. He argued, we ought to be able to have the best men in all of our law enforcement agencies working on the case immediately. You see, the small Kettering Police Department had turned down all offers of help and was working the case alone. And despite that cryptic comment saying things were going to work out, weeks passed without the public hearing of any suspect in the case, and the case grew cold. Then, suddenly, six months later, Kettering Police had a new murder on their hands. It was a Monday, December the 16th, and an 11-year-old Kettering boy named Tim Hart was home from school with the flu. He was in his upstairs bedroom when a chance glance outside his window just before 4 p.m., revealed a scene that bothered him to his core. His 12-year-old neighbor, Regina Duchnowski, was getting into a tan Pontiac car with a young man he didn't know. They lived on Farmside Drive, and he and Regina were playmates. He knew her well enough to know instinctively that something was wrong. Regina had been walking home from school. She was almost at her door, when the man pulled up and got her attention. They talked briefly, Regina gesturing as if giving him directions. Then she suddenly walked around in front of the car. The man reached over and unlocked the passenger door, and Regina got in. The man pulled away slowly. Alarmed, Timmy ran to the downstairs phone and called his mother to tell her that Gina had gotten into a strange car with a strange man. His mother didn't have enough information to be alarmed, so she took no action. Tim, however, was disturbed enough that he copied down the license plate number. That evening, Regina's mom called the Hart House looking for her daughter. That's when Timmy's mom explained what he had seen, and police were called. The next day, in the late afternoon, Gregory Crum and Kylie Knight were riding horses along an equestrian trail in a wooded area of Beaver Creek Township in Greene County. They saw something white in the distance and approached it. They immediately recognized it as a body. The Greene County Sheriff responded to the call and found Regina. She was nude, but for a pair of slacks pulled down around her ankles, lying with her back against the branches of a fallen tree. The investigation into Regina's murder suggested some similarities to Barbara Butler. They were close in location. Barbara lived less than three miles from where Regina was found. Both victims had been abducted in the middle of the afternoon. And, like Barbara, Police believe Regina was strangled to death somewhere other than where her body was left. 
Unlike Barbara, however, Regina had been sexually assaulted. Also, unlike Barbara's case, Kettering police quickly zeroed in on a suspect, thanks to the information they got from little Timmy Hart. Within hours, they identified Jimmy Wayne Howard, a 20-year-old man who lived in Dayton on Rosemont Boulevard. Howard was married to a 16-year-old bride with whom he had a one-year-old infant. He worked at the Frigidaire Division of General Motors. His family in Knoxville, Tennessee, refused to believe he was guilty. He was a Little League All-Star, played high school football, got good grades, and, according to his dad, J.C. Howard, you couldn't ask for any better boy. But Kettering police knew something else about Howard as they arrested him and charged him with first-degree murder and abduction. Turns out they had picked him up once before. A year earlier, he was living in Kettering and had pulled a knife on a woman, robbing her of $5.95. Here's the thing. He robbed that woman in the same discount store parking lot where Barbara Butler had been abducted. Also, he had forced his robbery victim to remove her shorts to keep her from running away. She fled anyway, and Howard was caught. The charge against him in that case was later reduced from armed robbery to robbery. He was serving a sentence of five years probation when Barbara and Regina were killed. When Barbara's body was found in June of 1968, Kettering police hunted down and interviewed Howard. But if they ever considered him a serious suspect in her death, they never publicly said so. Howard's name never appeared in print. You might be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight, cisgender white men. And the victims of true crime are not a monolith either. She's Wendy and I'm Beth. And together we host Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color, a true crime podcast. Together we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold. We also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve. At Fruit Loops, we're serving up true crime with a side of history, society, culture, and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Despite these connections, Kettering police did not want to make the leap that the murders of Rebecca Duchnowski and Barbara Butler were related. They told local reporters that they thought it quite possible that Barbara's killer was already dead. Two of the men at the top of their suspect list had both died in the weeks after Barbara's murder, one in a highway accident, another having committed suicide just 100 paces from Barbara's apartment, 16 days after her body was found. And so, police and prosecutors 
pursued Howard for Rebecca's murder alone. After meeting and interviewing the man, they saw enough to send him off to Lima State Hospital for a mental evaluation. After a month of observation, doctors ruled Jimmy Wayne Howard insane, saying he had the development of a 13- to 15-year-old boy and was incapable of understanding right from wrong. Four days later, a Montgomery County grand jury indicted Howard in Regina's death, and in March of 1969, a hearing was held to determine whether he was fit to stand trial. Testimony at the hearing revealed Howard had tried to kill himself three times before the murder of Regina. He overdosed on sleeping pills, rammed his car into a telephone pole, and tried to persuade his young wife to shoot him with a shotgun. The Lima psychologists, who labeled him insane, also said Howard had admitted to other crimes that they did not explain, that he suffered from dangerous sexual fantasies, and that he remained a threat, particularly to underage girls, and should not be released into the public. Judge Cecil Edwards agreed. He ruled Howard insane, unable to stand trial, and sent him back to Lima Hospital for an indefinite term. The indefinite term turned out to be two years, because in 1971, Howard's physicians at Lima reported that he had been restored to reason, so Montgomery County officials proceeded with their plans for a trial. Howard opted to be judged by a panel of three judges instead of a jury, and the trial of the murder of Regina Duchnowski began. Testimony revealed Regina wasn't Howard's first target that day. Three other girls had been approached by a man they identified as Howard, each saying he asked for directions, then offered them $20 to get in the car and show him the way. Two of the girls who fled that proposal memorized the man's license plate number. The car belonged to Howard. Then, Lima State Hospital psychologist Joseph Ryan was called to the stand to testify about his evaluation of Howard in 1969. And that's when the details of Regina's death came out. Ryan said Howard told him he had asked the little girl to get into his car and then drove her to a wooded area. He made some advances, then started to masturbate, and the girl screamed. He said when he was unable to quiet her down, he panicked and killed her. Ryan also testified that Howard suffered from psychopathic schizophrenia, a condition that in his case was easily set off by a woman's scream. He said during Howard's stay at Lima, he punched and broke a window, insisting he'd seen a woman's face in it then tried to cut his wrists with the broken glass. While he was being treated for his wounds, he kept talking to an unoccupied spot in the room. On February the 15th, 1972, the three-judge panel found Howard guilty 
on a charge of abduction resulting in death. They gave him a life sentence. Now, best as I can tell, Barbara Butler's name never came up in the trial of Regina Duchnowski. And yet, two days after Howard's conviction, Kettering Police Chief John Shyrock and Montgomery County Prosecutor Lee Falk made a stunning announcement. Their departments considered Barbara's case all but closed. They were convinced Howard was the man who had killed her. There wasn't enough evidence to bring him to trial for murder, but Chief Shyrock said Howard knew details of the Butler case that no one else would know. So they were making the decision not to seek any further evidence in Barbara's murder. Shyrock told reporters, We believe justice has been served in both instances. Nearly 10 years after Howard's conviction, there was one final twist in the case of Barbara Butler. In 1980, Howard and a new defense team asked a judge to throw out his conviction in the murder of Regina Duchnowski, saying his original defense team was incompetent. Among other mistakes, they said, the attorneys failed to call to the stand three of Howard's relatives who would have testified that Howard was with them when Rebecca was said to have been abducted. In the hearing to seek that new trial, there was this bombshell. Two of Jimmy Wayne Howard's former defense attorneys, called to the stand to defend their competence, testified that Howard had confessed to them he had killed Barbara Ann Butler. The first attorney, Walter Rice, would only say Howard told him he had committed two murders in 1968. Rice would not name the second victim. But the second attorney who testified, Lewis Hoffman, did. Howard's appeal to throw out his conviction was denied. Now, the Dayton Daily News reporter, who originally covered the Barbara Butler story, left the paper to write a book about the case. William A. Clark published The Girl on the Volkswagen Floor in 1971. I couldn't get my hands on a copy, but reviews say a revelation in the book was that throughout the coverage of the case, Clark had been consulting a self-styled clairvoyant, a man who worked in a factory by day and held sessions with Clark at night. The clairvoyant, according to the reporter, offered up several details that weren't generally known to the public and even predicted a second death was coming one day before Regina Duchnowski disappeared from her Kettering home. Apparently, Clark was a firm believer in the unidentified clairvoyant's skills. As for Jimmy Wayne Howard, he is still alive. The 75-year-old is at the London Correctional Institution and has been in jail now for more than 50 years. It makes him one of the longest-serving inmates in the Ohio prison system. His next date with the parole board 
is this coming September. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to ohiomysteries.com. Also, for more shows like ours, head on over to killerpodcasts.com. We are a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. The Korean War has sadly been known as the Forgotten War, but half a century earlier, the United States was locked in a bloody conflict in Asia that's been all but erased from the history books. Hi, I'm Alex Hasty, the host of Ohio vs. the World, an American history podcast on the Evergreen Podcast Network. In our newest episode, we speak to experts about the Philippine-American War, America's first Asian counterinsurgency conflict. The heroes, the villains, we'll discuss President McKinley, Admiral Dewey, the vicious brutality of the fighting and the scandals and war crimes that nearly sunk Theodore Roosevelt's presidency. Check out our show, Ohio vs. the World, on the Evergreen Podcast Network for our new episode about America's most forgotten war. Now back to the show.